Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting HANGUP to 31996. That's HANGUP to 31996. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of Season 1 is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. I'm Hannah Rosen, and I'm host of the Double X Gab Fest. Every episode, I'm joined by Noreen Malone and June Thomas, people I would talk to all day if I could. We talk about how the world is changing for women and men, at work, online, at home, and on the street. It's not a lecture. It's the conversation you want to have with your friends. Join us. So subscribe now where you get your podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 23rd, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss the greatness of the Golden State Warriors, who at 15 and now have matched the best start in NBA history. We'll also talk about the legal machinations around daily fantasy, with New York's Attorney General demanding that DraftKings and FanDuel stop taking bets from New York residents. Finally, Taika Waititi, director of What We Do in the Shadows, Boy, Eagle vs. Shark, and Flight of the Concords, will join us for a conversation about Jonah Lamu, the New Zealand rugby legend who died last week at age 40. Joining me in Washington, D.C., is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hey. This is our first time speaking since the live show. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Yeah. It was fun. Sorry. Fun. The we rise won. of my voice did not reflect 
Let the record reflect. Yeah, we won Family Feud. We won Family Feud. Mm -hmm. We got a little thrown off by the question of the most evil sports organization. Yeah. Um, we should have nailed those. We should have. We had four in a row. We don't want to. We don't want to spoil it for people who haven't listened. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what happened. I think that Stephen Metcalf gave a hilarious answer of the New England Patriots, but it wasn't right. on the board, and it was a great that threw us yes, off. Yes, and yeah. it was yeah. it was a great sarcastic type answer. So we thought right. that category of answer was not going to be honored, and it was. And to honor right. that category of answer with something other than the <laughs> Patriots is a little bizarre. But anyway, here we are today. Right. So really, we can blame Bring hang up and listen, listeners who didn't give the answers that we guessed. Ah, well, that is always true of the 100 people survey. <laughs> right. For instance, name a popular brand of soap. I said Dan and yogurt. Why didn't three of them? <laughs> <laughs> um, so for whimsy this week, Jeremy Richardson on Twitter recommended this. And I think this perfectly encapsulates both whimsy and anti-whimsy in one nugget. Um, he sent along the cleats for Wallace Gilberry, where he'd drawn on images of the Joker from Batman and like, haha, Joker stuff, and they look cool. But then I uh, looked into it further. These were Bengals defensive end Wallace Gilberry's pregame cleats. Yeah. Pre because you're not allowed to wear right. the cleats during an actual NFL game. No, pregame no. cleats. <laughs> this is what the NFL has. Mm -hmm. Fun cleats. cleats. These are these are me cleats. <laughs> this is me time. Cleat yeah. me time. My that would gosh. be a good name for a character. And now at fullback, Adam Auburn, cleat me time. <laughs> there was also a squirrel that interrupted the <laughs> Vikings Packers game, which Animal I didn't. Like... I didn't watch the game. I just saw the squirrel highlights later. But why couldn't they just play the game with the squirrel there? Is that like really a problem? Was it an 800 pound squirrel? Intru animal intrusions are always problematic. Yeah, Birds, there's always one guy, squirrels. usually a wide receiver, who gets really nervous and antsy and like there jumps could into be, a lineman's arm. There could be arms. some squirrel phobia. There could have been a squirrel phobe. Well, it wasn't on just the, the Packers. It wasn't Vikings. just the squirrel. It was the uh, crazy Spike Jones music in the background. <laughs> there was a fat guy touchdown. <laughs> who was a City lineman, Don Terry Poe. That guy touchdown on offense running. He gave him the ball refrigerator-esque touchdown. That's like three decades old whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> three decades, 30 year old whimsy. harkens back to the whimsy of your. Yeah. Literally, they say it was the heaviest touchdown in NFL history. 346 pounds. The heaviest guy ever to score a touchdown. And a kicker dabbed. Dabbing. There was some dabbing. Chandler Catanzaro. Doesn't seem like dabbing. your heart is really into this whimsy. <laughs> no, kicker's dabbing was... Are we sure, by the way, are we sure that Don Terry Poe isn't the name of a character in the new Star Wars movie? Are we sure of that? <laughs> Can we get some uh, cantina music? <laughs> Touchdown! <laughs> On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk about uh, Porzingis. Who stops? Yeah, the Latvian legend... It's like uh, Linsanity, but Latvian. <laughs> Latvian. That would be an excellent. Tell the Knicks. Tell the New so, York Post. Latvian Linsanity. <laughs> so that's when I go extra hard on the back exercises. Latvian Linsanity. When I go extra hardcore in. on the back exercises in the gym, I dub it Latsanity. <laughs> Are you ready for Latsanity? <laughs> has Vicious anybody. Pull down. Latsanity is actually Lat a good. Latsanity is not bad. Good headline. All right. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus, and you can get a free two-week trial at that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus. He still needs a nickname. Maybe we'll discuss that. 
On Sunday night in Denver, the Golden State Warriors beat the Nuggets 118 to 105 to tie the NBA record for the best start to a season. Uh, they're now 15 and 0. The Warriors finished 67 and 15 last year, outscored opponents by 10 points per game on their way to winning a championship. They're beating teams by 14 and a half points a game this year, ahead of the all-time record margin of 12 per game set by the Lakers in 72. They're led by Steph Curry, the reigning NBA MVP who is playing much better than he played last year, leading the league with a career-high 32.7 points per game and 74 made three-pointers. Curry's now on pace, on pace, pace. I know, on pace, on pace. But it's fun. It's fun to be on pace. He's on pace to make 405 threes. I noted this on Twitter yesterday. The three-pointer came to the NBA in 1979, 1980. It wasn't until like 93, 94 that a team and an entire season made that many three-pointers. It took about 15 years for the game to uh, advance team-wise to where Stephen Curry is by himself this year. And this obviously would destroy the all-time single-season record for uh, an individual of 286 threes set by Steph Curry last season. Um, So my grand pronouncement about this Warriors team is that, for a bunch of reasons that we'll probably get into, this is the most entertaining team in any sport that I can remember in my you know, lifetime. Keep in mind that my memory only really goes back a week, really, <laughs> really solidly. Um, so there is some recency issues here. Um, but is my exuberance, Mike, about this team rational or is it irrational? Oh, I think it's rational because th- the point you made, they're the most entertaining team. And so there are undefeated teams in the NFL. The Panthers are one. Can you sit a casual sports fan in front of a TV and say, look at them, just look at them? It has something to do with the style of play. Look at that Keekly. Look at the Keekly. Yeah, look at them uh, respect the lanes on kickoff. (laughs) So, okay, it has something to do with the style of play, but that's what you're saying. As a style style standpoint, the Warriors blend real greatness and fundamental, underground, excellent defensive greatness with – obvious to anyone offensive greatness and as we've talking about have we talking about or even talked about with grammatically correct sentences the three-point shot mixed in when it's not out of desperation when it's this like nice part of a flowing offense is fantastically amazing it's it's extremely exciting those two seconds where you hold your breath and then it splashes down and i think the other great thing about the warriors is it's really nice when you have steph curry who's the most interesting player to watch but you have all these other players who on almost every other team would be asked to be like the second or third best player and maybe would do well, maybe not, but you'd get mad at them for taking too many shots. Like James Harden's a great player, right? But is he that satisfying to fans or Carmelo Anthony? All these players who often to uh, show their greatness has to take too many shots. They have all these guys who are only asked to be the third, fourth, or fifth best players who play within themselves and therefore you never get mad at them for dominating the game. They only do exactly up to their level, and so therefore it's aesthetically even more pleasing and soul-satisfying. Except their level is a lot higher, and I think what's interesting about this Warriors team is that it's not Steph Curry and five other guys, or Steph Curry and one other guy and five other guys. That would be too many on the court. Um, <laughs> but sometimes it's like that. But sometimes it is like that. But but this is, this is a real team of complementary players. They are all very, very good. And Steph Curry is fantastic, but he's not Michael Jordan-esque set apart. Well, maybe he is, but you don't feel like he is. You feel like this is a group of all extremely talented players, 
any of whom could touch the ball and you would be satisfied watching them. You don't feel like if the ball goes to Andre Iguodala that you're going to be disappointed somehow. Or, Please, let's get it back to the really good guy on the team. The, you know, they are, they are, I think, pleasing to watch for that reason is that they all can do something really great at any given time. I was watching the game on Sunday, the, the 15th in a row, in the first quarter, they had 13 assists on 15 field goals. They move the ball. This is an interesting, fun, distributive team. And that's what I think is appealing about watching them. So the best lineup that they can put on the floor, and it's like what you were saying, Mike, it's like the best lineup is also the most fun lineup. It's like the greatness and the fun coincide on this team in a way that makes them the most entertaining team in our lifetimes. So the small lineup, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, who writes about them for ESPN, writes that it's nicknamed the death lineup, the nuclear lineup, the closer, <laughs> the knockout punch. This is when they put Draymond Green at center, Draymond Green, who is not the size or shape of a traditional center. Um, and the lineup is Draymond Green, Harrison Barnes, Andre Iguodala, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, all five guys who can make threes, all five guys who can defend multiple positions. And along with Curry being obviously the most important player on the team, Draymond Green, he might not be what you would traditionally think of as the second most important player, but on this team, he is because he can defend centers, he can pass, and he can shoot. And so he allows them to play this team that is legitimately impossible to defend. I heard you know, I was listening to a Zach Lowe podcast. He was talking to Amin L. Hassan. And these guys, you know, watched the video. They talked to all the coaches. I love reading Zach Lowe to hear his analysis. And he was saying they were like going through all the iterations. Okay, you can, you know, blitz Curry. And then you're basically relying on Andre Iguodala to miss a corner three. Well, Andre Iguodala is making 45% of his threes this year. There's like honestly nothing you can do. And there's no team in the NBA that has the depth of the kind of wing players that they have to match up with them. You know, Cleveland tried, but, you know, Tristan Thompson, he's really agile, but he can't defend any of these guys. You know, the Spurs, are you going to take LaMarcus Aldridge off the floor? The Clippers, are you going to take DeAndre Jordan off the floor? Like, the Warriors can defend every other team. No other team can defend the Warriors, and that's how you get a team that's undefeated and looks like they're going to win all of their games of games every one well, of them what i thought and and mike i'd like <laughs> your, your i'd like your thought on this um <laughs> tom ziller of sb nation wrote a piece that i thought was interesting um and he had the line the idea that it's sacrilege to mention these warriors these warriors who are the defending champions and are outscoring opponents by 15 points for, per game in the same breath with the 96 bulls is mind-boggling the heroes of the NBA deserve our respect, yes, but there's rampant evidence to suggest these warriors are reaching that level. And we do have a tendency, I think, as fans to like put the past on a pedestal. The 96 Bulls, they had Michael Jordan, but they're just like a group of guys. And this Warriors team, right. there's so much evidence that they're one of the best, if not the best team. And so why should we not compare them? And why should we not even say that they're better? The seventh best player on the Bulls. Now we're the seventh best player. This is a guy getting a lot of minutes is probably Bill Wennington. All right, the maybe the eighth best player, someone like Luke Longley or Judd Bushler, 
right? And you talk about the guys who are... You say their names with such contempt. I mean, <laughs> Bill Wennington, the seventh best guy on, on the Warriors, is something yeah. like, it I don't know. His fault. Okay, let's go foreigner to foreigner, big man, white comparison. Bogut to Weddington. Who is the better? Bogut Morris? to Longley, if we're going to stick All with right, let's go Bo- Bogut to Longley. There you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, you know, Harris Barnes is, Harrison Barnes is probably, I don't know, the eighth best player on this team. Depth, fantastic. Michael Jordan versus Steph Curry, obviously. Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan. But then right after him, I'm, I'm saying Clay Thompson is at least as fun to watch as, as, uh, so let's get back. Him. Let's get back to the Curry Jordan thing because yeah. Stefan, you're hesitant to say that Curry is better, too. But even if you say Jordan's was better in some sort of like, I don't know, grand mystical sense, or because he won more championships, you have to factor in the that three points are worth more than two points, and the way that Curry plays is it's it's sort of like how Don Bradman in cricket or Babe Ruth in baseball. He's like broken the sport or Messi and soccer. Like if you show the charts of three-pointers made or just how good of a shooter he is, he shoots like eight times per game from beyond 25 feet, and that's a great shot for him. He just like is so good on offense just because three is worth more than two, and he distorts the way that other teams play, that you could argue legitimately that he's as valuable to them offensively as Michael Jordan was to the Bulls. And, and why not? And, I, and why shouldn't we be Offensively, about... yeah. Offensively. Sure. And the way that that team is structured defensively, he's certainly not a liability to them on that end of the floor. No, and and given all of that, I mean, I think you're right, Josh, about the way we put historical teams on a pedestal. Why can't this team win 72 games, 73 well, games? Yeah, let's let's have that conversation because the yep. reason that they that they can is because of the concern about team health mm-hmm. that sort of in this age, the Spurs and Popovich pioneered that resting players and the Warriors – there were a lot of articles written. Tom Haberstroh last year on ESPN wrote a good piece about the reason that they beat the Cavs was because of the way that they rested players throughout the season and they used technology. And so the Warriors have this massive chip on their shoulder about everybody saying that they were lucky to win the right. title last year. But if that comes into conflict with player health and the ultimate goal of winning a championship, then they're not going to go for 73 wins. Right. Travel also factors into it because they live in San Francisco, and they, I think, pure well, miles with charter are, jets. With something. charter jets, I mean, it's not as big a deal, but it's still more miles, it's more travel than a team that lives in the middle of the country. I, I think one of the reasons that they might be able to win 73 games, given all of those factors and given the way that they do sort of factor in technology and, 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 and analysis of player health and, and I'm sure the way players break down over the course of the season, is that they do have that depth. Right. So that the depth is what if they if you combine the depth with this apparent desire to want to break these kinds of records um, while also focusing on winning the championship again, I don't see why that's not possible. They won 67 games last year. You know where I think the comparison, we really do uh, put it in a golden haze in the past. I think the Bulls were a great team, and it's not just that one, you know, around the 72-win team, they won in the high 60s and had had a run of championships. I'll go back and say, who in the world is saying the Warriors got lucky? I mean, sure, they got a chip on their shoulder, they're motivating themselves, but the Warriors were clearly the best team and they showed it. But if you compared the teams that the Bulls had to go through, not only to win their championship, but to win their 72, I mean, that 72 game season, they played a Supersonics team with Gary Payton and some nice players. Their 70- Sean Kemp was the best player in that finals. Come on. 
he was amazing. Let's not let's not denigrate the Sonics. All right, but let's not went, let's not have that conversation. I think that the teams in the West who the Warriors are playing are better than all the teams that the Bulls had to both get through. As long as you're not insulting Sean Kemp, we can be friends. All right, fine. Um, he actually, yeah, Kevin is, Pelt- he actually is my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Pelton wrote like, yes, they did get lucky last year in the playoffs because all the teams they've faced did have injuries, but still those were good teams. And if all those teams would have been healthy, that would have been way, way more difficult than any championship had that any team has, has ever had, at least since they started keeping track of these things in the modern era. One quick point before we end this. The health thing works in both ways. Like the Warriors are going to want to rest their players and keep guys like Curry and Green healthy. But they've clearly benefited in this first 15 games from basically every team in the NBA except the Warriors is like missing eight different players. Like they played the Pelicans twice who have like three healthy players. They played the Nuggets on Sunday who are like missing Kenneth Fareed and like all of their tall players. And so if you actually can well, Kenneth have Freed, a... all of a sudden counts as a tall player. Okay. He's got a No, rebound. they're plus they're missing, okay. you know, they're in addition to Fareed, I they're gotcha. missing all their centers. They're missing all their centers. Um I'm just saying if like the Warriors, you can maintain your health, like basically every night out you're gonna face a team that's compromised. And so I think maybe that is an argument for them winning a right. lot of games. You know what now else time... is <laughs> the fact that they're awesome and have won fifteen in a row. <laughs> that's true. Uh, now time for a word from our sponsor, Mile IQ, from appointments with clients, meetings, and errands. Unless you're chained to your desk all day, then you're one of the 60 million Americans who drives for work. And you're either spending too much time tracking every mile or you're guesstimating and you end up losing money. Mile IQ is the solution you have been looking for. It is the number one mileage tracker app. It's the only one that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. Um, when I was out reporting for my book, I had Mile IQ installed. It allowed me to track all my drives. It allowed me to focus on my interviews, focus on the craft of journalism. That is my expertise, is the craft of journalism. It's not tracking miles. That's Mile IQ's expertise. So I let Mile IQ do the job for me, Mike. When you do your interviews, you should make that point abundantly clear to your subjects. <laughs> Sorry, Look. this is the craft of journalism. You must answer. <laughs> It logged all my driving and it prompted me at the end of the day to swipe left or swipe right to indicate whether it was a personal or business drive. Very easy to learn. You don't have to do any tutorial or anything. Very uh, simple and works like it's supposed to work. So if you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. The average Mile IQ user logs $547 a month in drives. Mile IQ has a five-star rating in the Google Play and iTunes app stores. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money you should be claiming. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting the word HANGUP to 31996. That's HANGUP, all one word, to 31996 to download the Mile IQ app and start your free trial. Standard messaging and data rates apply. Earlier this month, the Attorney General of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, announced that daily fantasy sports games are, in fact, illegal gambling and demanded that DraftKings and FanDuel both stop taking bets from New York residents, calling them the leaders of a massive multi-billion dollar scheme intended to evade the law and fleece sports fans across the country. Never a good sign when the Attorney General calls you a scheme that's trying to fleece This followed the October decision by Nevada's Gaming and Control Board, the Daily Fantasy is Illegal Gambling, 
there are a bunch of other states making statements and holding hearings. There's a class action suit. Basically, the daily fantasy industry appears to be in a shitload of trouble. The industry's proprietors, as well as David Boyce, the legal counsel for DraftKings, another sign that you're in trouble is when David Boyce is your legal counsel. Um, they say that Schneiderman and others are overreaching and the daily fantasy was legal, continues to be legal, is not a threat to public morals. Specifically, they argue it's a game of skill rather than a game of chance, making it legal under the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006, which has a specific carve out for fantasy sports. Now time for the disclaimer, disclosure. We've had ads for both uh, DraftKings and FanDuel on the show. We have not had them in a while. Put that on pause. Stefan, what do you think of all the legal maneuvering, posturing? What's going on here? Uh, kind of inevitability, right? Um, it, it is obvious to anyone, and I guess it's easy to say now that everyone says that daily fantasy sports are gambling. People are addicted to it. You're shocked? I am shocked. The New York Times has a page one story on Monday about Daily Fantasy as gambling, talking to uh, gambling addiction people, talking to players who became addicted to it. I mean, what's forgetting the, the legal component here, which I guess we can get into sort of the legality of state versus state and federal level and what this carve out might mean on, on, on the federal level. But, you know, as a business and as a way to capitalize on the way sports have evolved in the last five to 10 years, daily fantasy certainly felt inevitable. And it really feels like the sort of broification of sports, right? They've. But sports were broish already? <laughs> well, in a way, in, in, a, in, in, I mean that in a very specifically millennial internet way. I mean, the fact that, the, that these companies don't seem to have anticipated this seems remarkable to me that they you know, the, the way they're responding publicly to these investigations and to the growing number of class action and other lawsuits seems completely uncalculated. It seems not very smart. I mean, there are still executives for these companies going out and saying, no, it's not gambling. Uh, this is, uh, well, this but is... they mean it in a very specific way, like statutorily. And these games were designed in kind of a clever way to fit into this unlawful internet gambling enforcement act of 2006 and daily fantasy didn't exist in 2006 but there was a specific carve out for fantasy games which were described in there as games of skill not chance and so daily fantasy is just fantasy sports daily you see you see how daily. that works yeah um and it was designed so that it was legal, and obviously it's a gray area, and it's being litigated now. But just, to, Mike, before we get to you to speak specifically about us doing the ads, I don't have any moral issue with these daily fantasy games. I think that they can be fun and, and entertaining, and just like fantasy sports can be. The issue that I had with it was when it came out that guys from DraftKings and FanDuel were using information mm -hmm. gleaned from people's lineups to bet and make crap loads of money. Um, so if somebody who worked at DraftKings could look at all the lineups that people were using in DraftKings, go over to FanDuel, use that information to bet in their games and win a lot of money. Like that seems bad and they needed to have regulations for that. And that's the only thing that I find like disturbing and troubling about it is the lack of internal controls. That's the only there. thing? Really? Not even well, the, the notion that there should be talk. some disclaimers here about the addictive nature of gambling or including a 1-800 number 
for Gamblers Anonymous the way let's many... Let, let's let Mike talk, okay. and then I can come back. We can come back. Yeah, sure. 1-800 number is fine. It's uh, de minimis and doesn't really do anything to dissuade people from gambling. In fact, it probably But it does help people, and I think it's not fair to say that that would be de minimis. But go ahead. No, I think it's uh, the literal definition of de minimis. It's the least you could do is to throw a 1-800 number there about addicted gambling. And they should do it in the same way that all the uh, Anheuser-Busch and all the beer companies have drink responsible ads because it puts them on the right side of the issue socially and also it gets their brand name out there when they say Anheuser-Busch sponsors this drink responsible message. So there's a few things going on. One, there's a categorization thing. So are we to think that daily fantasy is more like this thing that really is fine which is year-long fantasy, or are we to think that it's like this thing that I also think is fine, but society doesn't, or at least the laws don't, which is uh, betting on the outcomes of sports games. And I'm sure if Daily Fantasy, and they never would have done this, if they had branded themselves as player bet or individual wager, right? Betting on the individual instead of the team, which why would they have done that? Because that would have raised red flags and run afoul of the law. Then maybe we'd be thinking them as, wait a minute, this is just like gambling. So it is a lot like gambling. It is a lot like the illegal gambling, but it is also a lot like fantasy. It is a lot like the fancy that really doesn't have a lot to do with money. The problem is this does obviously have a lot to do with money. And I think that's fine. I think we should think that's fine in the same way that we think, you know, in general, I think we have a progressive view of a lot of the hand-wringing over sports uh, conundra on this show. I think that we look at the steroid era, the three of us, and look at the uh, voters who are standing athwart history and thinking that they're old and not really taking into account everything they can. I think we look at the issue of paying players in the NCAA or in some way compensating them and not taking a traditionalist view. And I just think betting on sports is fine. I think they do it in England. I think they do it throughout the world. I think that there are going to be some people who are victims, but that is true with everything. And it's a lot of fun. The companies themselves, I have exactly your moral or more of an ethical problem, but I think that if it comes out that only 90% of the people are losing money and only 10% are winning, they're going to have to reform. So once they reform... And I think that, you know, capitalism dictates they will. It should be fine. It would be bad if they're ripping people off. I'm glad the New York Times and other places have investigated the ripoffs where FanDuel guys can play at DraftKings or was it vice versa, and that should be stopped. But I do think most of the stated public worry about it is a little bit of puritanism mixed with the specific legislators going against this, either want to burnish their own credentials or trying to help establish gambling industries within their own states. I don't know. I I mean, I, I think there's room to say there's nothing wrong with this that and just admit that, look, this is a game that is partly about skill, because otherwise the half a percent of the players who account for something like ninety eight and a half percent of the winning lineups um, that, you know, that wouldn't be happening. But it's also at a lower level for people that aren't engaged in using algorithms and churning out hundreds or thousands of lineups bets per day in order to capitalize on inefficiencies in the overall market. So there is the, that's the skill part, but there is the chance part for everybody else, right? So if, if this industry could have anticipated that the smartest approach would have been to acknowledge that, to place it in the right basket so that it would not appear that they are being completely and totally hypocritical. And now they are in the position of having to craft legal positions to try to extricate themselves from this clear dilemma.
financially and otherwise. I mean, the, the you know the future of this business is completely in doubt now. Yeah. And you know who what who else is is screwed here? Are the leagues that have invested? The NBA, Major League Baseball, the NFL has not, by the way. The class action lawsuits have now brought in credit card companies, banks, payment transferring um, companies, payment transfer companies. So this is now much bigger than is this legal or isn't it legal? And is there a way to shoehorn this into legality? It's now this entire multi-billion dollar in terms of spending industry being faced with gigantic legal consequences. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there was a lot of short-term thinking here and you know all the spending it was like a hundred million dollars combined by the two companies just in week one of nfl just for tv advertising um it seemed like there was kind of a gold rush here there wasn't a lot of um long-term thinking and though um, i think pesca and i are on the same page about not seeing any kind of moral issue here i do feel like there was something is deceptive the right word? Like, I think that, you know, it's just marketing. Like, I feel like they wanted the average consumer to think that this wasn't what it is, which is gambling. And I think, you know, The Atlantic had a headline in 2014 before this all kind of blew up, which was a new twist on fantasy sports may enable betting on a scale the country has never seen before, which I think is true. And I think even if you don't have a moral issue with that, which I don't, whether it's legislators, whether it's, uh, you know, voters or uh, consumers, whatever, people should be aware that right. this to me would enable betting on a scale the country has never seen before. And I think it's important for people to know that. Uh, okay, it's interesting. I agree with you. I'd go beyond that. If you look at all their TV commercials, they always have the message of now I can have bragging rights with my friends. It has nothing to do with that. You don't play daily fantasy against your friends. That's the conflation, the willing conflation of daily fantasy with the more benign and excellent for humanity, yearly fantasy. They also talk about, do you get your tips from your Uncle Al? Do you get your, it's, uh, what's his name? Edward Norton doing the voiceover too. That's, I don't like that. I don't like Edward Norton, beloved actor <laughs> Edward Norton tell me to, telling me to do this. So yeah, you're right. That's it is. actually his character from Primal Fear who's doing the uh, voiceover. <laughs> Yeah, can you trust him? Is he who he says he is? Is he an altar boy? So, oh, no, wait. It's the American History X one. Oh, my <laughs> God. Shaved head Ed Norton telling you to go gamble. Wait, Mike, can we listen to the to the honest Daily Fantasy commercial from John Oliver? Have you heard this? No, that's awesome. Let's, let's listen to it. Daily Fantasy is the hottest new way to make real money. As soon as I tried DraftKings, I was hooked. I've been using FanDuel since I saw those commercials on TV all the fucking time. <laughs> I turned $35 into $2 million into $40 into $0 on FanDuel. Daily Fantasy is the best. I get to play every day. You mean you get to gamble? <laughs> it's not gambling. <laughs> oh, it's definitely gambling. You have a massive gambling problem. It's actually a skills-based game that is going to make us rich one day. <laughs> You're an idiot. Yeah. Those oversized novelty checks are similarly deceptive. But, Stefan, I want to go back from marketing. You know, you say that it was really stupid for them not to have anticipated that. It doesn't seem smart. But if their strategy was grow this thing into a business worth each of them valued at over a billion, partner mm -hmm. up with the NBA, partner up with the NHL, not the NFL, but with the Cowboys, but with the Patriots, partner up with all these people, get all these clients 
interested slash addicted to it. I think that will be the thing that gets them through the legal challenges. Maybe they should have anticipated more of the legal challenges and maybe they were taken by surprise. But what they did to lay the groundwork for themselves to be an ongoing business that won't be interrupted by the government just by dint of their uh, how huge they are. I think that was, well, it was selfish, but it was also wound up being will wind up being pretty smart. I mean, maybe they did anticipate all of this and they figured this is a fight that's worth fighting and we believe we can win. But the legal hurdles are going to be enormous. I mean, in New York, for instance, illegal gambling defined illegal gambling chance counts as illegal gambling in New York, um, even if skill is part of the game. So you know, obviously a gray area and it's unclear right. what, what the result's going to be. It is unclear what the result's going to be, but I think it's sort of impossible to now say with a straight face that this industry isn't tarnished. This industry doesn't look somehow ridiculous because of everything that's gone down from the volume of ads, which have drawn all of this ridicule to the very specific legal problems they are going to send. I think leagues like the NBA and Major League Baseball running for cover. All right. Last last thing. What's striking to me about all this, and I shouldn't be surprised, just how insincere I think all parties are being like in that quote that I read from the New York Attorney General, it's like, massive multi-billion dollar scheme to flee sports fans and this class action suit Stefan you sent around this like the quote, quote from the attorney yeah it's oh like my god I how they the were lured the in I mean and they think they're just playing sports games but it turns out to be a gambling situation and they lose a lot of money oh my god and like Nevada says, classifies as, as illegal gambling obviously just to protect their you know monopoly on sports gambling that they have there you know, I just find every you can't just say that the daily fantasy sites are being hypocritical, similar to how the daily fantasy is a gold rush. This is just everybody rushing in to try to, like, be as massively outraged as they can be in a public way that, it, you know, I just find ev everyone to be unlikable. Well, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman reached a settlement with company over fake charity clothing bins reached a settlement with Buick dealers, reached a settlement with for-profit college chains, reached a huge settlement regarding climate change with Peabody Energy. I don't know. He seems to have a, a history of reaching a settlement with all these people. <laughs> Let's see what happens with Daily Fantasy. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Jonah Lamu, who died last week at age 40, was an international sports legend, the most iconic player in the history of rugby union, famous pretty much everywhere but America. 
The New Zealand winger first gained notice in 1895 when he scored four tries in the Rugby World Cup semifinal against England, including one of the most famous ever when he plowed over the unfortunate English fullback Mike Catt. New Zealand have begun the game at the pace. I think they'll want to play it. Walter Little, Frank Bunce takes the tackle. Bash up again, New Zealand maintaining possession. Wide to Lomu. He's got the bounce. He's handed it off his opposite. Lomu! As you can hear, the New Zealand announcer kind of loses his bearings there. It's a, little, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit sexual uh, at the end. It was. Um, Lamu, who at 19 was the youngest man ever to play in a Test match for New Zealand's All Blacks, stood six foot five, weighed 260 pounds, but played on the wing, a position typically reserved for smaller, lighter players. His combination of power and speed changed the sport, though his career was sadly cut short by a kidney disorder. They required a transplant in 2004, and Lamu died last week, uh, reportedly of cardiac arrest. He is an icon in his native New Zealand. On a list I found online of the 10 most famous New Zealanders, Lamu is right there next to Flight of the Concords. And since Sir Edmund Hillary was not able to join us today, we're very pleased to have Taika Waititi, a writer and director of Flight of the Concords, along with the director of the film's boy, Eagle versus Shark and What We Do in the Shadows, which is one of the funniest movies I've seen in the last few years. Taika, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And um, you're from New Zealand. Can you describe to us what it was like to watch Lamu when he played in that 1995 Rugby World Cup? Well, it was a bittersweet World Cup because the 90s were um, were just a string of us failing to win back the cup. We gained this... um, notorious um, reputation as chokers because we'd always get to the final or to the semi-final and we'd always like just, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't bring it home. But Lomu was our big hope. He was like this freak of nature who was sent to us from the heavens to ensure that we won the World Cup and we were so sure of that in 95. Actually, in that World Cup, um, I that's the South African one, right? Yeah, it was the South African one, yeah. And there's actually a lot of controversy behind that. And I don't know if you've seen Clint Eastwood's movie about that, that World Invictus, Cup. Invictus, yes. Invictus. It's never really talked about, but um, the entire team got food poisoning in the in the game that they lost. It uh, was food poisoning that cured apartheid. It's exactly. So it was <laughs> like we took one for, for all teams. We probably should have won, but um, basically whenever they got a chance, like players would just be off to the sideline throwing up. And so no one was really operating at 100%. And also Nelson Mandela put a spell on us. <laughs> uh, there was a Telegraph match story after the semifinal win over England that described Lamu as a runaway potting shed in boots. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I don't know what impressive. a potting shed is. <laughs> um, it sounds by, like by... The, a typical English um, attempt to undermine <laughs> how great he was. Instead of saying uh, he was like the Titanic um, on two legs, it was like, a potting shed. He's like a teacup. He's like he's like a big porcelain teacup. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was dominant, but for a very very short time. It it seems like in in reading about his career. How did he become such a transformative figure for New Zealand sports fans and for rugby? So there was a few different ways that he changed the landscape of, of New Zealand, really, as a whole. So um, so in terms of rugby, he was one of the first big players that we had on the wing. So as, as you said, it's a position typically reserved for smaller, faster guys. But um, there was another player, um, Inga Tuingamala, who was another um, really big 
fix-it um, island player who, who was a winger and just fast and powerful and really, really hard to stop. They realized that when they got these big guys who were faster than anyone else in the team and was um, as big as the forwards who were the biggest guys on the team who like do all the kind of grunt work, yeah, that's a really, really effective weapon. And I remember seeing him, I think it would have been in the early 90s, he must have only been like 17, and um, the news had like gone to his school, gone to, um, I think it was Wesley High School, and, um, and there was like a news piece on this like giant guy who was like demolishing all the team. It was like um, that Sandra Bullock movie. It was like that. It was like the news going to a school and like seeing this this guy. And they had footage of him just just basically running over children who were his age, but it was just looked like it looked like an adult who was just running over children. And um and I think everyone in the country just thought he just needs to be an all black. He just needs to play rugby for us. And um and it was really soon after that that I think they signed him up. I understand that, but I don't get the comparison to Miss Congeniality to Armed and Fabulous. How is he like <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> <laughs> so, Tech, I wanted to know, he's Tongan, right? Are you Tongan? Me, no, I'm Māori. So Māori are, the, um, are indigenous to New Zealand. Tongan, uh, you know, Tongan are from Tonga, and then the Samoans, and then, uh, yeah. So, like, we have, a, like, a big... Um, population of you know from the islands yeah and they're kind of all like you know put under this umbrella of the you know, islanders who've, who've come and, and set up in new zealand and been there for a long time right and so they're a big part of society there and you know there's a big thing now it's like you know so many um we kind of re- recruit quite a few players from the islands um in in a lot of our teams and a lot of our like um provincial teams and um and also in the All Blacks as well. Yeah, and by the way, the NFL has uh, put ex- NFL, extended exactly. extended its arms into the Tongan population. But I wanted to know, you know, we as Americans, obviously different countries have different racial histories and racial sensitivities. So we know, for instance, that in New Zealand, the nickname is the All Blacks. That would never fly in America. But is there was there an amount of sort of transcending races or uh, an element to, you know, his popularity among all New Zealanders that went beyond rugby. Yeah. And also, you know, by the way, in America, that would be called the all people of color. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) until the next bout Um, of sensitivity hits. (laughs) Yeah. So Jonah was like a big phenomenon in New Zealand because he was from the poorest area of Auckland. The, Kind of, I mean, you know, the comparison would be like Southside. So he would be, you know, he was from South Auckland. It was, yeah, it was like basically not the place that you would usually find, you know, sports stars or international sports stars or any any stars. So, um, so like that, and and when he came onto the scene, you know, he was very proudly Tongan. He was very proudly from South Auckland. He he became a real local hero and suddenly it was cool to be from South Auckland and it was suddenly cool to be from Compton. So it was like he. He changed that landscape and was very inspirational for a lot of young Polynesians who, who realized, oh, wow, you know, it's actually, you know, it's like it, the area we're from is actually really unique and it's got a lot of flavor and culture and and it's, it's not something to be ashamed of. So he was one of the first people to really stand up and say, yeah, this is who I am, this is where I'm from. And, um, and still to this day, he's like, yeah, he's a big hero because of that. 
I've watched highlights and the kind of the greatness about him. Maybe there's subtlety to rugby. There definitely is some subtlety and some great moves that I don't get. But the stuff that he did that was awesome just transcends anyone's ignorance of the sport, which involves mowing down players and not being able to be stopped. I mean, really, Mike, it reminded, it reminded us of sort of Bo Jackson in his prime, just sort of this other... Yeah otherly creature yeah. that was apart from everyone else on the field. Or, or we were talking uh, Marcus Dupree, a great college player. There was some footage from him in high school, like you said, just running over people looking like an adult trampling you know, <laughs> six-year-olds. There's so many, there's so, and there's great footage now. Like, you know, if you go on YouTube, there are, you know, like Jonah's 10 biggest hits and stuff where it's like, you know, it's like people being knocked back like, 15 feet after him running into them. It's like really incredible stuff. And, and yeah, there's something about that that just captures the imagination and it's, you know, giant dudes smashing into each other. It's, um, it's the stuff of legend, guys. <laughs> it is. And you um, had a couple run-ins with him um, where you managed to stay on your feet, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Well, there was a mutual respect, obviously. You know, I think he saw me and he thought, you know, well, that's not often I meet someone I wouldn't run into. That's so, right. Um, Two apex predators circling each other in the jungle. Right. Yes. And then we let, let each other go mm -hmm. each other's way. Um, Till next time, my friend. Um, so the first time was when we were shooting this um, like precursor to Fly the Concords where I was playing one of their guys, like agents, and um uh, we were all at the airport and we were doing this, this scene where we were, I was putting them on an airplane to America and um, Jonah just happened to be passing through the airport and like, you can tell when he was around because everyone, the whole airport would stop and everyone would just sort of like turn their heads and look and, you know, and there was Jonah Lomick because he's taller than everyone else in the airport and um, we thought, oh, let's just like, off the cuff, let's just go and like, you know, kind of like not punk him, but like just get him involved and just, you know, start doing an interview, see how much he loves to fight at the Concords, although no one had heard of them at that point. And, um, yeah, I try and get some sound bites from him. And I had like this stupid accent. I said, I was talking like this. I'm like, come on guys, let's go talk, talk to Joan. I love me. And as we walked, as we approached him and got closer to him, just, it was like in the movies, like, you know, you just see, he just got taller and taller and bigger the closer you got. And then, sort of like came face to face and, so, and I completely dropped my accent and just became a normal rugby fan. I was like, um, oh, hi, Jonah. Um, hey, how's it going, man? Um, oh, these guys are called Flight of the Concords. Can you just say you like Flight of the Concords? And I just like completely dropped everything and he just went, yeah, Flight of the Concords are cool. And then he's like, cool, thanks, man. Okay, have a good trip. Bye. And we all just like wandered off and uh, it was so But weird. it does seem it's like... so weird, like little fangirls. It's so dumb. <laughs> but with athletes whose whose star burns really brightly and and flames out for one reason or another, whether it's a decision to quit or in Jonah Lamu's case, illness uh, contributing to his decline, there's there always does seem to be something extra about that person. I mean, to to go from being a star in a World Cup or two to being a sort of transcendent national figure, you know, top ten most famous, right there next to. Edmund Hillary and other people I haven't heard of. Um, and, and Taika Waititi. And Taika yeah, Waititi, exactly. of course. And yeah. I know, you know, and it, yeah, I didn't yeah. think there was any more room up there you know, for anyone else than he came along. But then, <laughs> I, um, but you know, it's, it's funny to say Bo Jackson because that, you know, all the endorsements and stuff that he was doing, you know, like for Nike and uh, and all those things were happening for Jonah. And like, I remember seeing it saying, what? This guy's a rugby player. We don't do this. And, you know, suddenly he's like, on 
Adidas commercials and he's like, you know, selling stuff. And it was really amazing. He was driving around. And the amazing thing, he was one of our first, like, super rich sports stars. So in Wellington, we both lived in Wellington, and um, he uh, he had this giant mansion on this hill overlooking the harbour. And it was like, you could see it from all over the city, and it was it was the only big house in Wellington. Like, yeah, you could see it. You'd be like, oh, that's Jonah's house. And then another time in Wellington, I was walking down the street. And, um, oh, and this is kind of like connected to the last story. So like a couple of years later, I was walking down the street and um, this like huge, I can't remember what kind of car it was, just like a very big car with, he famously spent like $100,000 or something on like getting his car kit out with like TVs and sound systems and speakers and stuff. And this is like late nineties. So it's like, a, this was a, no one was really doing that. And, um, you, you, you heard, I just heard this like rolling PA system and it like kind of, and he almost ran me over actually. He was coming out of a driveway and I sort of stopped and then he, and then saw this like big giant gangster car and I like stepped back and it kind of rolled past and then the window wound down and it was him and he went, flew to the Concords and then like just screeched <laughs> off up the street. <laughs> This uh, this interview could have had a. It might not have even happened, or when you know his his legacy could be like rugby star who killed aspiring filmmaker <laughs> dies at dies at age forty. No, no, yeah. it would still it would still be exactly what it's been. And in the eighteenth paragraph, oh by the way, he also killed an aspiring filmmaker. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you wouldn't be talking to me. Um, well, Taika, we're glad that you're still alive. Thank you for explaining the Joan Alamu phenomenon to us, and uh, hope to talk to you again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Taika Waititi is a writer and director of Flight of the Concords and the director of the films Boy, Eagle vs. Shark, and What We Do in the Shadows. All right, it is now time for After Balls. Ah, and... yes. <laughs> What's that? I don't know. I just wanted to be excited. You like, you like After Balls? Yes. Been so waiting Mike, for this for a while. After Balls. Mike, Mike, I've got, I've got uh, something I wanted to tell you. Uh-huh. So the Irish Examiner did a cover. There was a tribute to Joan Alamu. It was the all-black silver fern logo with a single leaf Mm -hmm. shed like a tear. It was awesome. Like, everybody's praising this cover. Um, And so I was looking up the silver fern, and I discovered that the Prime Minister of New Zealand, John Key, has announced as of 2014 that there's going to be a referendum on the New Zealand flag, on changing the flag. And they might change it. To the Silver Fern, which is the logo of the All Blacks. Did you know about this? Um, We've covered it extensively in the Vexillology Corner on the gist, (laughs) Josh. I think you've just outed yourself as maybe at best gist dabbler, not a gist completist. But (laughs) But wait, did you know about this? Yeah, yeah, we've discussed this extensively on the gist, I swear. I didn't know if you listened to the gist. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) With Mike Pasca, not as listened to by Mike Pasca. But uh, so here's the problem. They did it backwards. I would think that this would be a decent way to do it. First, they have a vote. Hey, what should the new flag be? And then they decide on the new flag, and then they put the new flag up against the old flag. Now, all the experts tell me that is a great way to get the new flag not adopted. Everyone will go for the old flag. First, you have to have the referendum, should we change the flag? Then once you Mm. say yes, there's a vote on whether it should be, you know, whatever. And there are a lot of good um, alternatives. But the problem with the black fern, it would be the only flag that's black and white 
in the world other than the Jolly Roger and ISIS. So <laughs> there it's is some bad it's rebranding black and white. But there is a version of the old red, white, and blue Union Jack-esque flag that also incorporates a fern. I think they've got a number of, in fact, all of the f- choices, the four finalists, there were three finalists, they all were fern-based, and then someone said, we need a non-fern choice. So there was like a little arrow mountaintop. But the experts tell me that the old, the old flag's going to obtain Oh, they should have done that. The, was, the that was a mini, a mini vexillology corner. Yeah. Yes. Mike, I liked the uh, terrorism expert from Northeastern University talking about the incentives. Yeah. Terrorist attacks. He just Googled. No, yes. I did not. No, I, listened did. I, I listened to that. I listened to that. My computer isn't even facing you, jerk. <laughs> jerk. Jerk butt. All right, Mike, what is your uh, silver fern? For some bizarre reason, I was watching Kansas State against Iowa State. So <laughs> I, I saw the tweets. Yeah, <laughs> Iowa State. I got, I got one of them wrong. Iowa. So for you, Stefan, at the end of, uh, well, uh, let me... Let me uh, back up and give and just lay it out. Iowa State is up thirty-five to fourteen at halftime. They uh, they score in the second half too. They have a gigantic lead, and then they decide to opt for a strategy that I don't understand. I will now read you how all of their drives ended in the second half and see if you could discern a trend. Downs punt, fumble punt, fumble fumble fumble. Do you see the trend there? They fumbled a lot? They fumbled a lot. In fact, with a minute 31 and a, t- and a seven-point lead, they have the ball. And instead of taking a knee or better, and I'll get to it, scrambling back a yard or two and taking a, le- a knee, they decide to run, immediate fumble, Kansas State gets the ball, they're already in Iowa State territory. Uh, sorry, they drive down to Iowa State territory, they tie the game on a touchdown. Then, on the next play, Iowa State has the ensuing kickoff. Iowa State has the choice with a few seconds left on the clock. We could take it into overtime. We could look at our history of fumble, fumble, punt, fumble, and try not to fumble. But no, they run it again, and guess what happens? Fumble. This is with 42 seconds left. There is a run for four yards and then a sack resulting in a fumble. Kansas State gets the ball right then and there. There's 10 seconds uh, left in the game. There's the play where they center the ball but lose two yards uh, sort of to put the field goal kicker from his comfort range to the edge of his comfort range. Then Iowa State does that horrible thing where they ice the kicker and then they ice the kicker again, which is no longer legal in the NFL, the double icing. Right, Stefan? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So they do the double icing. It doesn't matter. Kansas State kicks the field goal. They go on to win the game 38-35. So I wondered why with a minute 30 left, why the quarterback just didn't take a knee. And the coach said, we have a chart for that, which is the wrong answer if you're a coach on the hot seat. So I looked at this chart. And for high school, college, this chart I found on the American Football Monthly Forum called Game Clock Management Notes, it noted that in high school and college, the chart for if it is first down uh, and the opponent has one timeout left, you should take a knee with anything less than a minute 39. So I don't understand why the chart would say a minute 31, run a play. But you do the math in your head. They run a play. There's a 40-second runoff. So 40 plus 40 is 120. You subtract three seconds per play. That gets it up to 129. 
And then maybe there's two seconds left. So you have a fourth down with two seconds left. So you run backwards and take another knee. And this sometimes goes on. In fact, there is a clock management guru who has invented something called the zigzag. And the zigzag is a way to lose 12 yards, but to get 15 seconds off the clock. And every once in a while, this happens in a game. It happened in a game where USC was playing Washington. In a headline titled, Chris Peterson isn't alone, the chart is a common football coaching tool. So this is when uh, the coach of Washington, Chris Peterson, cited the chart. They talked about a time they were playing USC and what then coach Steve Sarkeesian had his quarterback do. He instructed quarterback Cody Kessler to take the snap and run backwards until the game clock ticked below 40 seconds. So this was on the penultimate play of the game. Kessler wound up sliding down for a loss of 19 yards. But because his run took the game clock below 40 seconds, the Trojans didn't have to run a play on fourth down. Sure, it's a little different on fourth down. It might be uh, stomach in the throw time to run backwards two yards. I mean, yes, in the grand scheme of things, running into the line shouldn't result in a fumble, except if you're Iowa State and it resulted in fumble, fumble, punt, fumble. So I think they have to rethink the chart, rethink different ways to run a few seconds off the clock. And really anything, if the opponent is one time out, you should be able to kill the entire game game clock in the NFL or college. Well, the other thing that they do now is if there are a few seconds to go on a fourth down and you need to, um, you know, just end the kill the game is just throw the ball really high in the air out of bounds. That's good too. That could be <laughs> grounding. Why not just run? You did still you, have the ball. Did you know that the Iowa State coach was fired immediately after the game? Oh. Not, a, not, little, not immediately enough to harsh. give this. Pre- not immediately enough before he gave a press conference where he cited the chart. <laughs> <laughs> he was immediately fired after citing the chart. Stefan, I also your didn't note that Mark Mangino, who was Iowa State's offensive coordinator, was tweeting gleeful things at Iowa State's demise. This, despite the fact that Mark Mangino's son was at the time the coach of Iowa State's receivers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Stefan, what is your silver fern? During Whimsy Watch, I half-heartedly mentioned kicker Chandler Catanzaro dabbing after kicking a game winner on Sunday. He wasn't the only one to dab over the weekend in the NFL. Dallas football team wide receivers Des Bryant and Terrence Williams dabbed after a touchdown, but they did it together, which earned them a penalty for celebration. Quote, two or more players engaging in prolonged, excessive, premeditated, or choreographed celebrations or demonstrations. Now, if Bryant and Williams get fined, and Josh, for the sake of the children, let's hope that they do, it will add to what's turning into a banner year for fines doled out by Park Avenue. Park Avenue, of course, the metonym by which the NFL likes to refer to its headquarters. Through Week 10, the league had doled out 84 fines, totaling $2.15 million at the current rate. The NFL will hit players for more than $3.5 million in fines, smashing the $3.1 million record set in 2012 and equaled in 2013. Per the NFL's collective bargaining agreement, the money generated by fines goes to two organizations designed to help retired players. The NFL says on its website that about $4 million a year has gone to the charity since 2009. That does not jibe with the data I just cited, compiled by SpotTrack, a sports salary database, which I would probably trust more than the league, which no doubt wants to inflate its fine totals to make it look more the disciplinarian. SpotTrack's data goes back to 2002, and it's sortable, so I did some serious advanced metrics-ing. And as you'd expect, the NFL has stepped up its fine game in the Roger Goodell era. 
In Goodell's first season, 2006, there were just 15 fines assessed against players for a grand total of $343,000 with no fines for roughing the passer. And a couple of the fines in that total were Fred Smoot and Bryant McKinney on the Vikings love boat. But how far we've come, thanks to Commissioner Goodell, can't we all just tell how much safer the game is now? Anyway, this year... Roughing the passer, number one. Unsportsmanlike conduct, number two. Late hit, number three. I put together some all-time numbers here for fines. Josh, Mike, I need you to weigh in here. Number one, what do you think leads the pack for our fines, NFL players? Uh, it, psh, prob- Which player? It should be Aaron All-time, all, all, all fines, all players since 2002. I'm going to say James Harrison. No, 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 not players. All the type of fine. Oh, the fine itself. What are NFL players Uniform violations. the most? That would be nice. In a, in a perfect world, that would. But in the Goodell world, number one, roughing the passer. Number two, off-court, off-field violation, $2.9 million. I'm throwing that out because $1.1 million of that is Cam Chancellor for holding out before the season. Number three, hit on a defenseless player, $2 million. Four, helmet-to-helmet hit, $1.5 million. Five, late hit, $1.2 million. It's all of these hit fines. You know, where is the uniform violations? Uniform violations would be 12 other uniform slash equipment violations. Only $581,000. I agree. Celebration 13th, $486,000 in fines for celebrating. Players just running around with cleats, with unauthorized cleats, getting Come unpunished on. for it. Unpunished. 14 foreign substances on body slash uniform. <laughs> $466,580. We need more foreign substances on bodies and uniforms. You know what else we need more of, Mike Pesca? Football into stands. Oh, that is be a violation. Isn't it 100 bucks every time you throw it in? I always th- thought like it was 5000 now. What? 5000 doesn't 5300 Those balls are expensive. 5375 or something. So give it into um, a kid, a little kid. Yeah, the fines maybe... are always like strangely not round numbers. They are not round numbers, yeah. There's like 23,157 is one of the fines this year. Um, football into stands, only $141,000 worth of football into stands in the past 14 seasons. NFL players need to give away more balls. They also need to commit last on our list of fines, 31st on-field commercial logo violations, $10,000. I think that was like Brian Urlacher wore some hat to a press conference. I think that's what it was. So six weeks to go in the season. We need to get our fines up because if you throw out that Cam Chancellor fine, we are at like 2010 levels of fines. And I think that's just embarrassing to the commissioner. Um, There's only been 84 individual fines through week 10. Again, 2010 levels. Six weeks to go, Roger. Plenty of time to penalize players for non-physical offense against official or foreign substances on body uniform. Josh, what's your silver fern? Earlier this year, Ben Cohen of the Wall Street Journal reported that Auburn Athletic Department officials successfully lobbied to save the undergrad major of public administration. Why would they want to save public administration? In the fall of 2013, more than half of the roughly 100 public administration majors were athletes, including nearly all of the top stars on the Auburn football team. An athletic department lobbying directly to keep an undergrad major is unusual, as was North Carolina herding athletes into African-American studies classes that barely existed. 
But clustering in specific majors is very typical. Bleacher Report put together a list this year of the most common majors for football players at LSU at Sports Administration, Arizona State Interdisciplinary Studies at Baylor Health, Human Performance, and Rec Studies. 2011 AP study found that 43 of 62 Georgia Tech football players majored in management. Love management there. 35 of 59 at Vanderbilt majored. That's good because, you know, Donald Trump says we don't have enough management in this mm -hmm. country. There's no management. 35 of 59 Vanderbilt football players majored in human and organizational development. Defenders of the NCAA argue that college athletes don't need to be paid because they get an awesome free four-year education. But this is the kind of education they're getting. Even excellent students like Kane Coulter the Northwestern player who pushed for unionization at that school says an academic advisor told him not to take chemistry because it would get in the way of football. Athletes get pushed into easy majors because less time hitting the books means more time hitting the playbook. But the NCAA trying to do a good thing could also be contributing to this bad thing. A lot of coaches and administrators blame the academic progress rate, the APR, which is an initiative put forward by the NCAA to make sure athletic programs are meeting certain academic benchmarks. Georgia Tech basketball coach Paul Hewitt says the APR encourages our kids to take the easiest path to eligibility. Yeah, encourages the kids. That's that's who it encourages. Mm -hmm. But isn't that really what college sports are all about, the path to eligibility? A 2008 piece by USA Today offers a couple of really illustrative case studies. As of 2008, more than 25% of upperclassmen Wisconsin football players were clustered into the major of agricultural journalism. And probably not because they had a passion for communicating natural, environmental, and agricultural science to society. In a 2009 interview, offensive lineman Craig Urbick evinced no interest in the field of study, explaining that he hadn't grown up near a farm or ever milked a cow. But Urbick did just sign a contract with the Bills that included a $3.5 million signing bonus. So maybe college did really prepare him well for life. Then, no, come on, uh, you learn the four W's. Wheat, whey, <laughs> wheat germ. <laughs> Wisconsin football. Uh, Virginia Tech, a 2011 study in the Journal of Issues and Intercollegiate Athletics um, wrote is about- Is that a burgeoning journal? That it seems is. to be a thick journal. <laughs> <laughs> it wrote about, um, it did a case study of a specific college. It didn't name the college. Unnamed college. <laughs> but there is only one college that I could find that had a major in apparel, housing, and resource management. So this study found that in football players' first appearance in a media guide, so presumably their freshman year, 39 Virginia Tech Hokies football players listed business, business and management as their major. Only three chose apparel, housing, and resource management. Apparel. By the time of their fourth media guide appearance, so it was three to 39 before, two Virginia Tech players had stuck with business and management. 50 <laughs> were in apparel, housing, and resource apparel. management. What is apparel, housing, like and resource management, Josh? <laughs> It's, Closets? It's apparel. Apparel housing? It's housing. It's oh, research management. I thought it was There's apparel housing. Between them. There are, there are <laughs> commas. There are commas. I thought it was Mike. like you put the you put the clothes <laughs> and the shrink wrap thing under the bed. You know, you get a lot of free stuff from Nike or Adidas. You need apparel housing. Yeah, it's my you're going to go pro. Sneaker tree. Shoe tree. <laughs> apparel housing. <laughs> apparel, comma, housing. Comma and resource management. It is a kind of odd list. Of, I validate. I validate your laughter. This would even be more funny if it wasn't just uh, about college athletes getting a completely worthless education. But you can still laugh. Um, so this is the legacy. 
of Virginia Tech football coach Frank Beamer, who's retiring after the season. Three Big East titles, four ACC titles, they switched conferences, and scores of players who've developed a deep academic interest in apparel, comma, slash housing. Now, can I just say something in defense yes. of the Vanderbilt players? <laughs> the human and organiza- organizational development ma- major is Vanderbilt's most popular undergraduate major. It's okay. sort of a catch-all. Mm-hmm. It's in the Peabody College, which used to be called the normal school, a lot of education majors. So I'm going to say, just to show, just to have better credentials that the Virginia Tech major is bullshit, let's just say the Vir- Vanderbilt major may be a stupid title, but it seems like a legit major. Very fair. Okay. Very, very See, fair. See, so we're fair, people. This means that the Virginia Tech major really is ridiculous. We love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'd love to hear from apparel housing <laughs> and resource management majors. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed. I would actually love to hear from apparel housing and resource management majors. Come out of the closet, people. <laughs> <laughs> Come out of the resource <laughs> place, the place where resources are. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Remember to take all the core classes that are required for mm-hmm. apparel, housing, and resource mm-hmm. management. There are five majors and program options in apparel, <laughs> housing, and resource management. And thanks Consumer for listening. studies, fashion, <laughs> merchandising, and design, property management, residential environments and design, and family and consumer sciences. Beamer Ball, thanks for listening. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.